Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello, welcome to the Sugar Steam Podcast, another edition. I'm Dave Hendon, Michael McMullen is back. After my interview last week with uh, Jason Ferguson, we're going to, this week, we're going to go through your emails, a lot of built up over the last couple of weeks. And there's also a sensational revelation, which uh, I mean, you've got to stay tuned for this because it is huge, huge. <laughs> but, oh, it's huge. But, well, but, it's we, huge within the context of this, but on, the, well, on, a, on a world scale, I think it's fair to say there are bigger things going on. Well, you say that. We'll, we'll, let, we'll let listeners decide. But first, um, the UK Championship. What about that then? Um, a little. It seems a long time ago now. Obviously, uh, the, the final between Neil Robertson and Judd Trump. Um, my view on it is, people are saying, oh, you know, one of the best finals ever. It wasn't really, but it was certainly one of the best finishes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, brilliant final frame. Um, and great viewing figures, I understand, actually have come out in the last few days, showing yet again that, you know, the appeal of the game when you get these big late night finishes that we don't see very many of these days. You look back on it now. I mean, the feeling at the end of the matches, oh, you know, that was that really wasn't great quality. It was actually a spell for most of the afternoon where mm. the quality was pretty good. I think we've just come to expect so much of these players and so much of the finals that they play in. But we've seen it a few times recently. We saw it in the Northern Ireland Open final as well, that the quality was only really good in patches. But in a way, they're the best matches in, in some sense because you get the mix of quality and then the tension at the end. In between those two, we had to wade through a lot of, let's be fair, really, really forgettable frames. Um, and Trump is going to be absolutely sick about that, isn't he? Because, as you would say, it was a chance to win another triple crown. No, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> Already you can yeah. comment with that, honestly. But having, having said that, I mean, you know, aside from that, the, the, the fact is that, you know, he had only won the UK Championship once. And the UK Championship is obviously one of the oldest and most prestigious events in the game. And it would have meant a huge amount to him to win it. He also would have got, OK, £200,000 and the equivalent in ranking points. And to have basically done the hard part and then to miss that pink. And he was very honest about it afterwards. He said he bottled it. And I think that is basically what happened. He would never have missed that. Now, it's maybe a bit harsh to describe it in those terms because, you know, you're playing under immense pressure. But it was only the pressure, I think, that caused him to miss it. Well, I think, though, by then they both bottled it, really. I mean, you yeah. know, it wasn't just that shot. And, you know, I mean, it was, it was less actually the pink. It was more sort of brown to blue. But, I mean, you, you know, you could write a book on the, on, the, on the final frame. I think the problem in terms of the quality is, obviously, we compare other matches they played, particularly that Champion of Champions final last season, which, which you know, I rated as one of the greatest matches ever. Um, yeah. But, yeah, to, uh, what it proves is, and it's, it, we know this, but it's, it's worth underlining, when the quality goes down, the, 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 actually the excitement can go up because uh, pl- great players, and they are both great players, under pressure can miss anything. And the fact also that there, I mean, there wasn't a crowd, it didn't, m- didn't make any difference. I thought that it was a fantastic tournament, actually. Um, obviously, on Eurosport, we'd show both weeks of it. Um, I thought it was a great event. It was full of drama. There was a lot of high-quality snooker, a lot of stories, you know, upsets and interesting things happening. Obviously, it's going to be remembered for the way it finished as well, which is, I think, you know, often how we rate tournaments. We remember the finals and how the finals went. Um, and I, I do think the sort of, like you've touched on there, the history of the UK Championship, its status, it made a difference. Although 
a lot of that was because everyone kept saying, oh, it's the UK Championship. You know, everyone was being reminded every day of the history of the event. Um, let's be honest, if we're being sort of strictly sort of um, objective, this event bears no relation at all to the UK Championship of 30 years ago when it was two session matches, best of 17s, two-day finals. But it is still the UK Championship. That role of honour is what, you know, Neil Robertson's on again now for a third time. It's, I still think it's a major event, personally. It's just a different one. Um, and actually, <laughs> the thing about the best of 11s, you actually get to see more snooker um, because, you know, you used to see eight or nine frame sessions. Now you could get as many as 11. And even like a 6-2, you've seen guaranteed eight frames. It's not like a match petering out at 9-3 where you might see sort of four frames. Um, I would personally still like to see if they could tweak the schedule in some way, introducing best of 17s, certainly for the semi-finals. I think, you know a semi-final of the UK Championship, make it longer. Easy for us to say, we're not doing the tweaking. But overall, I thought it was a terrific event. Yeah, I mean, just picking up on some of the things you said there, and I think we may have said this, actually, when we were looking ahead to the UK Championship in a previous podcast. I think the time of year is very important. Mm. It's always been in or around that time of year, and it definitely wouldn't feel like the UK Championship if it was played in March or whatever. And they're still playing for the same trophy that they were playing for as far back as 1991, when it was still that old-style event. Yeah. I mean, they, they had had all kinds of trophies up until then. We remember when tenants were sponsoring it, it was basically a huge sort of gold-coloured letter T, which, you know, really looked, you know, not really fitting for one of the big events. So little things like that, I think, uh, keep it as big prestige in people's minds. It is still one of the biggest first prizes as well, and obviously that yeah. relates to ranking points as, as well. Here's the thing, though. Had Trump potted the pink, it would have been the first ever black ball finish for the <laughs> UK Championship final. Now, it may only have lasted one shot, but it would still have been a black ball finish. And you may be able to answer this, actually. I couldn't think off the top of my head. When was the last time the black ball finished to any final? You're probably going to tell me it was two months ago now. I mean, I just don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I probably would have commentated on it, but I just, you yeah. know, things, things just flow into one, don't they? I don't know. The, yeah. the, UK, the UK final, it, it sort of reminded me of, was Sean Murphy, Marco Fu, yeah. Uh, yeah. 2008, which again was a good finish, not necessarily the highest quality final, but, you know, memorable finish. Uh, but look, it was, uh, it was a great, it was, I mean, what, what got me was actually the way Neil responded at the end. There was absolutely no celebration at all. He was clearly exhausted, happy it was over, happy to win. And I'm sure the next day he was, you know, a bit more chipper, but it was one of those things, you know, just relief, really. That's all, that's the only emotion. But this is going to tie in now. Now, you brought me this. So mm. there's a certain subject that I promise never to speak about again. So I'm going to leave this to you. But all I'll say is, OK, this is, you know, people make all this fuss about Watergate and all this, all this investigative journalism. But this, this is a revelation. And you, mm. re you really are the sort of Walter Cronkite now of the podcast because you're going to wow. bring us this. Yeah. I think I was already, to be fair. <laughs> but... Um... OK, uh, do you know what I'm actually going to do? I'm going to look at, and find this here. I think this is cheating slightly, by the way. I mean, basically, you are bringing it up on the podcast. You're just getting me to do the dirty work. You but brought anyway. it to me. Hang on. You, <laughs> you brought it to me on a WhatsApp message full of exclamation marks. Well, um, you're you're bringing it to the public. Anyway, yeah. look, let's let's have a look at this here. I'll tell you how I came upon this, by the way. When Tep knew how it was confirmed in the Masters, I thought to myself, I wonder what was the last time uh, there was a tie player in the Masters. I knew it would have been James Watanay, and I knew he'd dropped out of the top 16 in 99. So I had a look at the 1999 Masters to see who he'd played in the first round, actually, because it would have been you know, a bit of a line to use if Omnu had drawn the same player. As it was, Watanay, back in 99, on his last appearance, drew Ronnie O'Sullivan in the first oh. round. So Omnu could actually have drawn the same player, but he didn't. Anyway, here's what I found. Um, here's what it says. John Higgins defeated Ken Doherty in the final, blah, 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 blah. Uh, meaning that he held all three, here come the words, triple crown titles simultaneously. But this is, yeah, but this is the big bit. Before his semi-final match, Higgins had said, referring to the possibility of holding all three titles, that triple crown would be a dream, but it's going to be tough. After his win, the term triple crown was used in a number of newspapers to describe Higgins' feat. Now, that's possibly true, but I think if... The implication is to be drawn from that, that from that moment on, the term triple crown was being used. Then I don't think that's the case at all. I think Higgins used that in a throwaway kind of term. It was the middle of the city, the, well, but still the Five Nations Rugby Championship then. So maybe the term triple crown was being bandied about. Actually, I think Scotland won it that year. 
I also remember that weekend, uh, John, I was at Wembley. I don't you were at Wembley that weekend, no. but I know I was. And um, I'm, not, I'm not to blame for any of this. No, indeed. Yeah, you you stayed well out of it, actually. That's probably why he felt safe using the term. But uh, I do remember John John was really ill all that weekend. So, you know, his mind clearly wasn't right when he was using terms like triple crown. Well, here's the thing. OK, so so, yeah, it, it, what we're saying is John Higgins invented the triple crown. Let's not get away from that. Now, here's how I see it. OK, I'm, I know I'm talking about it again, but you brought it up. Right. So. They're in a press conference. Someone has said to John, because, of course, he'd won for the first time the previous year the world in the UK. First time. So that's quite significant. John, how would it feel to win the Masters as well? That's probably what the question was, right? Not in the context of they're the three that matter, but how would it feel to win another major event? And he's come out with a very good quote there. That's a good, that's a good usable yeah. quote in a newspaper. And I, and I looked it up, and I've, it was used in a couple of newspapers. Low down. It wasn't like sensational stuff. It was a good quote. My feeling is your, as the same as yours. Then it probably, you know, it, it's been mentioned. Maybe it was mentioned after he won it because he did win the Masters as well a couple of days later. Yeah. Um, possibly it was mentioned again. My feeling is it probably wasn't mentioned again actually until Mark Williams actually won all three uh, in 2003. But the sort of seeds have been planted. And I'm not going to go on about this for a long time, but I think the, the way it picked up currency was you, you fast forward another 10 years and within a very short space of time, Three players actually win it pretty quickly in succession. You've got Sean Murphy, Mark Selby, and Neil Robertson, all within quite a short space of time, all complete the set. The BBC, in the meantime, have dropped their fourth event, so they are looking to sort of market their coverage in a different way. So that's kind of how it developed. Um, now, we're not blaming John Higgins for this. It was a good quote. Um, <laughs> he wasn't to know what was going to happen. Uh, but there we are. That's basically what, what we're saying well, is that's where it started. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I'm not even sure that Triple Crown was being mentioned as a term, even when Mark Williams did it. So I delved into the archives. Well, I did as well. I found, okay. I found, I found a press association report, right. report by John Curtis, who was a you know, yeah. very good journalist. Um, he actually did use it in one of his stories. And of course, the PA story goes all around to every newspaper. So, you know, it would have been in quite a few newspapers. Well, I did find, I, in fact, I have in my hand a copy of... <laughs> <laughs> Neville Chamberlain all of a sudden <laughs> yeah well, a few minutes ago was Walter Cronkite yeah. um, I have in my hand a copy of page 21 of the Irish Times wow. from the 2nd of May 2003 and a report from some long forgotten journalist called Michael McMullen at the Crucible wow. Theatre and it, you go down to the I've lost you people now can you still hear me Hello? <laughs> what a time to lose him. Just as he's about to reveal. Just as he's about to reveal. Okay. All right. Oh, you're back. We well, you... now. That yeah, may I'm have back got... now, yeah. That may have gone out. I couldn't hear you. That sounds like someone is jamming the signal, so I can't, I can't hear this. Repeat what you said there. You've got page 21 of the Irish Times. Yeah. Then we lost you. Yeah. Okay, so it's my report from the World Championship action the previous day. Maybe the signal was being jammed. Someone wants to suppress this. Yeah. So it says... The 28-year-old, referring to Mark Williams, also has a chance to complete a clean sweep of the ah. game's three biggest titles, having already won the UK Championship on the Masters this season. So it was clearly being talked about in the Crucible press room. Yeah, well, but, that's fair enough. I would have yeah. done because, it, you know, they are three big tournaments. But anyway, what we're saying can, is... Can we, call it, can we call it the clean sweep series? And instead of wearing those crowns, they wear a sort of broom or something on their waistcoats. Well, I have to say, and, and without wishing to nurse a grudge, I have to say... The arena, I thought they did the arena really nicely. It was nice to see the trophy up there. Like you say, it's a great trophy. Um, but they were on a hide into nothing putting those triple crown winners up because, of course, one by one, they got beat and they were there the whole yeah. week. They were there the whole week, like sort of, you know, uninvited guests of the party. They'd lost. You know, they should have been taken down one by one, in my view. Anyway, what we're saying is it's the fault of John Higgins. So if you've got any problems with it, write to him. Um, and, uh, yeah, he will say, what are you talking about? I'm sure. Let's move on. Um, but there we are. That's, That's see, we brought you there. We brought you there. Breaking news, basically. Um, we're now going to move on. Uh, we're going to talk about, actually, the, go back to the UK Championship. Robert Dunn has said, on the back of Neil's great win at the UK Championship, I was wondering if that win will get any sort of traction in his home country, Australia, when it comes to press coverage, newspaper headlines, TV exposure, etc. Well, sadly, Robert, the answer is probably not. He gets sort of... He gets some coverage, but it's very much, you know, low down the news agenda. Uh, funnily enough, when he made his 700th century, it was during the Welsh Open um, last season, 
that seemed to create a little bit of a buzz. There was he, there was a, someone sent a screenshot of a Sydney shopping mall where there was a sort of headline, you know, one of these sort of advertising things with the news headlines. He was actually on that. When he won the World Championship, he got some coverage. But sadly, no, he's sort of playing a bit of a lone furrow because snooker in Australia is not a frontline sport. And there'll be many British sporting champions in sports that don't get a lot of coverage who could sympathise, I'm sure. Um, but, yeah, sadly, you know, I mean, he couldn't have done much more, could he? Let's be honest. He'd have to probably win the World Championship again to really, you know, threaten to get any. Uh, it's a shame. But, you know, he, like I say, couldn't have done much more. Well, funny, I think, yeah, and you all know better than anyone, actually, I think there used to be a bit more coverage of the game when he wasn't quite as successful. He was on the way up because you used to do some Australian papers, didn't you, with him and yeah. Quinton Han about 15 yeah. years ago. And I suspect there was perhaps a bit more then. The, the, the other thing, of course, is that this UK championship, much like when he won the world championship, I guess, uh, had the advantage <laughs> that in Australia, it would have been sort of late morning, wouldn't it? It would have been sort yeah. of 11, 11, 12 o'clock. And of course, now I don't know what it was like in 2010, whether it was going out live, but it certainly goes out live, all these things now in Australia. So that might have helped to get a little bit of coverage on the grounds that people would probably await to see it. Well, someone wrote to me to say that the Eurosport um, Australia package is going off one of the main carriers or something. Uh, I'm not exactly sure of the the details, but essentially it, it seems that they don't get to see as much as they did even sort of a few months ago. But uh, maybe any Australian listeners could, could clarify that. But he certainly deserves, you know, um, coverage for what he's doing. He's, you know, he, like I say, he's on the other on the side of the world, one of the best at what he does. Um, just wanted to touch on one story that was in the paper last week, or the papers last week, about uh, Jack Lazowski. Now, um, there was a story that uh, he himself was asked about, do you feel you get criticised maybe too much by some of the TV pundits. And he actually said, I mean, it's quite a startling thing. He said, when I play on TV, my family basically turned the sound down and put music on because um, they don't want to listen to what they feel is a kind of relentless uh, criticism of Jack. Um, now, I suppose the question there is, is he being oversensitive or does he have a point? The only way you could actually sort of work it out is if you go back and listen to everything that's been said about him. I think that there is a sort of consensus on him among the sort of ex-players that he is a major talent and they'd like to see him doing better. They feel that maybe sometimes, you know, his shot choices are a little ambitious when he could play the percentages more. Let's be honest, though, he's done great. He's in the top 16 in the world. Uh, he's earning good money. The only thing that's missing is a trophy. He's been in a few finals. Um, but he, I suppose the question is, does he have a point or not? Yeah, I, I think at the very least he has a point. Um, he does get criticised, as you say, for his shot selection. I think the thing I've said about him a number of times is his head just seems to go walkabout sometimes, particularly in longer matches. And uh, in a sense, maybe it's a tribute to his, his talent that, you know, we are surprised that he hasn't won a tournament yet and we feel that he should. And I think everyone would like to see him do well because obviously he's overcome a lot. He had cancer at a very early age and he's come through that and rebuilt his life afterwards very well. And also, he's pretty much the nicest man you could ever meet. Mm. So people would love to see him do really well. So I think he's got a bit of a point, but as perhaps maybe taking it a little too much to heart. And it's all meant certainly in a constructive way. And I certainly can't think of anything that I've ever heard being said about him that probably wasn't fair comment. I think the thing is, if you want to be a professional sports person, then, you know, complaining about criticism, it's a bit like the captain of a ship complaining about the sea. Mm. You know, people have opinions and not just the pundits on TV. You know, obviously, the whole social media thing as well. People forget the, these things. Stephen Hendry, when he won the world championship for the first time, there were ex-players saying he was the worst ever world champion because he didn't because he didn't play the craft game of eking out the balls and all that stuff. He just played the sort of bash him up, score heavily game. And he didn't sulk about it. He couldn't care less about it. He just carried on winning the tournament. They certainly wouldn't have said it probably even two years later. Of course, Neil Robertson um, was told by Hendry to his face he was an amateur break builder. Um, he again, he could assault. He could have complained. Oh, you're having a go at me? No. He listened to him. He took it on board. He became one of the great modern break builders. Um, and I would also say this: um, it didn't go out. It was supposed to go out this interview because Jack was supposed to be playing in the Scottish Open. Uh, they had all the problems with the tests, and then actually pulled out with illness, um, food poisoning. But I know Rachel Casey at Eurosport interviewed him and sort of asked about a few of these things. And he actually said of himself, I don't think I have the brain for snooker. Now, that to me is a far harsher verdict on Jack 
than any pundit has given. It seems to me there's a slight self-esteem issue there that he needs to work on. He's a really, really, really good player, clearly. And he's come very close to winning tournaments. My advice would be, as much as possible, just ignore what people are saying. Uh, you're out there playing. The one player he could look at, I think, is Judd Trump, who similar sort of talent when he was younger, but did change, has changed his game very much so. Still has the flair, but maybe a bit more measured. Ultimately, though, it's up to Jack how he wants to play, how he wants to conduct his career. Um, he's doing well. That's the thing I think that shouldn't be forgotten. He's doing well. I just think a lot of these ex-players who, you know, understand playing, they see how good he is and, and, and they feel, well, you know, how is this guy not winning tournaments? That might come. Um, we'll see. But, yeah, I, I think it's a bit of a shame if his family are sort of turning the sound down and putting music on um, because they're worried about what people are going to say. That's uh, maybe not a great situation. Um, let's move on anyway. Um, mm. Jamie Capper has, has emailed... We're recording this, by the way, just as the Scottish Open uh, final weekend is getting underway, so we don't know who's won. But he asked a question, how do the seedings for the Scottish Open work? Because he was looking at some of the matches. You've got, it seems, top players playing each other in the first round. Ali Carter played Ryan Day, and then you've got players in the hundreds playing each other. So he's asking, how do the seedings work? Well, it's kind of the opposite to the UK. The UK was very strictly seeded, so the number one seed played number 128, for example. Two plays, one, two, seven, etc. In this event, the top 16 are essentially kept apart. But then after that, anyone could play anyone in the first round. So you could get, you know, uh, two members of the top 32 playing each other. You could get two rookies playing each other. Um, I guess the idea is to provide a bit of variety. Players only see this. I kind of said this to Jason Ferguson last week. Players only ever see it from their own perspective. So if if you're high up the rankings, you would feel I shouldn't be playing another player high up the rankings. I should have an easier draw. I'm sure players low down the rankings are quite happy to play someone of their own sort of similar ability. Um, but that's how it is for the home nations. Yeah. Um, it's a bit like it used to be at Wimbledon. I mean, they have 32 seeds now. It used to be only 16. And beyond that, you could literally have number 17 playing number 18 in the first round. I think the thing with draws is they tend to even out. You know, you might go through a period where you're getting, you know, really bad run. You're getting difficult draws all the time, but it'll come back around for you and you'll, you'll, you'll get some easier ones. I remember about 20 years ago, someone came up with this idea that um, all the ranking events for the whole season, it was going to be when they got to the last 16, it would be seeded to be number one versus number 16, number two versus number 15 and so on for every single tournament. So you weren't going to get much variety there at all because there'd be some changes because obviously defending champion would be seeded number one. But most of the tournaments at that time were held by the top players. Someone actually worked out that it meant Alan McManus and... Virgil O'Brien, haven't mentioned him yet this week, would play each other in the last 16 of every single tournament. So that idea, I think on the basis of that alone, that idea was uh, was dropped very, very quickly. So um, I think it's, it's, it's probably fair enough, as I say, it throws a little bit more variety into it. And, you, and it does open the door maybe for other for some players lower down the rankings who've got a bit of ability, but just can't get through against the, the very best players, maybe to beat someone not quite as good then get through to the next round and then have a couple of matches under their belt by the time they face the top players. So I don't think there's any uh, any great problem with it. Of course, in the past, we've experimented with just completely open draws. We used to have that for the British Open. We had it for the Grand Prix, didn't we, for the year or two? Uh, ultimately, in the end, I think these things all balance out. Yeah, I mean, one sort of word I can't stand in sport is fairness. You know, oh, is this fair? Is that fair? Life's not fair. The fact is, they've all got the same opportunity. They all turn up with a queue. Okay, you know, you don't want to be playing, you know, an absolute top player in round one. But, you know, like you say, it's a long season and hopefully it will even itself out. Um, so get on with it, is my advice. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to say that. If I was a player, of course, I'd see it in a completely different way, but uh, but I'm not. Uh, speaking of players, we were talking about Canadian snooker players a mm. couple of weeks ago and what sort of happened to snooker in Canada. John Bennett has written... He said, you recently spoke about Canadian snooker in your podcast. I've also been chatting with a Canadian about the same thing. I said I could probably name about 20 Canadian professionals. I think I managed 17 from the 80s and 90s mainly, but absolutely none today. He told me there are many players today better than most of the past professionals, excluding the usual suspects of Thorburn, Stevens, Werbeneck and Robidoux. He told me some of the professionals from the past would not have done 20 century breaks in practice, uh, but suggest, suggesting they weren't very good, which on the whole their results would support. I suppose it boils down to the practicality of the game in, of snooker, i.e. travel, expenses, facilities, etc. 
versus opportunities and rewards, highlighting that snooker is somewhere to go before it could be con- can be considered a worldwide sport. On the positive side, it's in a better position now than ever before, professionally, that is, not at grassroots level. Uh, well, the, we also David Burney, who, of course, has written, he's from Canada, mm. he said, um, on the sort of similar subject, he said, have you heard of the book On Snooker by Mordecai Richler, a great Canadian author, and in this book, he tells some tales of players that are involved in the 80s boom. Well, yes, I, we not only ever, I, I remember when he was writing it because he came over. Um, he did. He came to the Crucible, didn't he? He spent a lot yeah. of time hanging out with Clive. I think Clive at last thought he had a fellow intellectual in the press room with him, and uh, they hung out together for the for the few days. It was a really I, good book. I, I read it in one day. I think yeah, it was quite a short book. I think he was at yeah. the Irish Masters as well. Uh, um, I think you're right, actually. I think he came yeah. for the day. Yeah. That's yeah, right. I mean, he was obviously you know a very well regarded writer already. Um, you know, with a sort of interest in this, and and it was interesting to get an outsider's view. It was quite a quirky book in some ways, um, and I think he'd reached that stage in his life where he thought, "I can say really what I want about anyone," um, and it doesn't, you know, I don't really care, which which I've got a lot of time for. Um, the other Co- thing about yeah. that, by the way, just one of my abiding memory of that book is that uh, he, uh, Stephen Hendry, went for dinner with him uh, in in the in the course of his research for the book, and. Which, you know, was very generous of him to give over that much time to uh, this guy who he basically didn't know who was writing the book. So he did well to secure that. And I remember he, he tried to engage Stephen in a conversation about politics, but said he got absolutely nowhere with it. Uh, but yeah, it was a good, good book. That. And I, I think it was kind of it, it wasn't meant to be one of these books that was an in-depth history of the game. It was meant to be more kind of giving you a flavor of the, the culture surrounding the game as much as anything else. So it's a good read for uh, anyone who wants to have a look at it. And just talking about Canadian players there, Rob Spencer, who's obviously one of the top referees now, Rob in his day was a really, really good player, actually, not far away from being professional standard. And he used to play at a club in Stockport, which was one of the best and strongest clubs in the country at that time. And he said there were loads of Canadians there, players like Brady Gollan and guys like that, who came through sort of as the second wave of Canadians after the initial impact of the likes of Thorburn and Stevens and Werbenick. And once one of them had started basing himself in Stockport, they all did. So Rob tells, uh, you know, very fond tales of his days playing at that club. I think it was called the Masters Club, uh, where it was full of uh, really good Canadian players. But with the exception of Robidoux, I don't know if he was part of that Stockport scene. None of them ever really in that generation of Canadians got anywhere near being uh, genuine top players. Well, David Burney has more on this, actually. Because oh, sorry. He, no, no, because he says, he, you mentioned Brady Gollum, he crops up here. He says, he says you're right that the Canadian broadcasters, we were saying, you know, it must have gone off TV. And he said the Canadian broadcasters dropped it in the early 90s. He said, I enjoyed watching it back then. And all of a sudden it was gone. And then he says, uh, he says, the problem is rooms with snooker tables have slowly closed down. Thus, the kids have nowhere to go and play. I hear Brady Gollum has to drive for an hour just to get a table to play on. Our country is very large. So I can only really report a lot on the scene in Western Canada. The point is, it like I think it's like with a lot of countries, people are they want to play, but when we've heard, you know, our correspondent in Italy, you know, a lot of people have to travel now to play, and obviously that takes time. And if you've got jobs, if you've got families, whatever, it's not necessarily possible. So if it's not, you know, what drives the interest? Definitely television. And if it's not on frontline television, then you know the the sort of businesses, the snooker clubs are not sustained. They shut down. There's fewer places to play, therefore there's fewer people playing. Therefore, that whole culture kind of starts to go away. Um, maybe fathers don't take sons anymore, or daughters for that matter, to play snooker. And that is, it kind of gets lost that way, which is a shame, I think. Um, we've, we've got another uh, email from Canada. It's not actually about this, though. It's about something else completely. It's Callum Cottrell. He said, being from Canada, very few people here know what snooker is. <laughs> That's not, that kind of confirms what we're saying. Mm. He says, it's nice to hear a conversation about snooker, at least pretend I'm part of it while listening to you guys. So I ran across a video of an interesting snooker controversy I don't think you've ever talked about on the show. And he's provided a link. He describes it himself. Now, this is Graham Dot and Mark Selby at the Crucible, okay? He said, Graham Dot plays a safety that sends the cue ball towards the corner pocket. Oh, yeah, we all remember this one, yeah. yeah. Instead of letting the ball drop, he blocks the pocket with his hand. The ref, Alan Chamberlain, calls a foul. Selby assumes he can put the cue ball anywhere in the D and moves it to position he wants. Unfortunately, this too is a foul because the cue ball never left the bed of the table, which was a shock to both Selby and Dot. Yeah, I, do, I remember this very clearly. Um, and we sort of talked before about how referees love love things that never happen and then they happen and <laughs> they can they can prove they understand how it works. Alan Chamberlain was correct, um, but it was a very sort of arcane rule that, you know, I, I understand when people think the players should know all the rules, but 
it's the sort of thing Selby would never have seen before. Basically, yeah, Dot did what a lot of players have done, which is the cue ball's running into the pocket, and he's kind of just stopped it with his fist. But because of that, the ball actually doesn't go in the D. Um, he has to play from where it is because it hasn't left the bed of the table. That's the rule. Okay. Now, I think people argued at the time the referee maybe could have communicated that to Selby. He doesn't have to, though. Um, mm-hmm. the, re- the referee can say, well, you should know what the rules are. I think it was a bit unfortunate. I think he was lucky it was Selby, actually. I think that some players, if that had happened, there would have been a major stink about it. Mark just kind of, he didn't understand it, maybe, but he got on with it. Um, but yeah, it's one of the sort of quirks of the rules. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know about communicating it, because if you're going to do that, you know, where do you draw the line? You know, at, at what a referee should say to a player? Because, of course, Mark then assumed he was playing with ball in hand, but he wasn't. So he picked it up and put it in the D, and then Alan Chamberlain called another foul. And then the argument sort of went on between them after that. So I remember you saying at the time, in a sense, all three of them were right. And <laughs> I mean, there was no dispute between Dot and Selby. They were on mm. the same side, I think. So it was one of those things. But ultimately, with a referee, you cannot really criticise them if they've applied the rules correctly. And I think in that case, Alan Chamberlain absolutely did. I know of one commentator who I won't mention who was absolutely raging about it. Um, we told another commentator, it was one of the biggest disgraces ever. Can't believe these referees, who they think they are. And and the the, the other commentator said to him, oh, you know, what, what these, you know, you, this because this was the, the day later. He said, oh, you're still really angry about this. Um, let's let's call it Bob. Okay, still really, <laughs> still really angry. You're still really angry about this, Bob. And he he, he said, oh, he said, yeah, he said, I've only just heard about it. He hadn't actually seen it. Someone had told him about it. <laughs> He'd just been told about it in like the Champions Lounge at the Crucible or something. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, it, it was a strange thing because people said at the time, well, now everyone can just start, you know, putting their fist in the in the pocket, and it didn't happen, of course. Okay. Can I can yeah. I just come in there just just to pick up on you use the term Champions Lounge there because it's a term that often gets used, and I think people imagine, and I certainly did before I'd ever been in it, that it's this you know huge place with you know plush carpets and you know really thick, deep armchairs and all the champions of the past sit around having brandies and smoking cigars. Now, you've been in it as well as me. It, I mean, it couldn't be more different to that. It's, well, the fact, you know, the fact we've so been functional. in it, yeah, the fact well. we've been in it is a clue. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's funny, though, that term is always used. And it's not, I'm not saying it's been used incorrectly because it is the Champions Lounge, but my word, the impression that it gives of what goes on up there is just so completely different to what it's actually like in reality. Well, it's like the Champions League, just phony. Anyway, <laughs> let's let's move on. Now, Neil Dagley, you remember, emailed us about uh, he was looking for this clip of some uh, snooker playing robot. Um, oh yeah, we were able to to tell him it was QED, and he's written back. He says thanks for the QED tip. He's actually found it on YouTube, so he's found the clip on YouTube. However, it was Ted Lowe, not Jack Carnham, so uh, he he was right. No, Jack Carnham was playing. No, there were there were two of these. Oh, Ted- here we go. No, Ted Lowe played in one, which I think was probably around this 1984. Is, this 85. is your this is your triple crown. You're gonna it's the hill you're gonna die on. No, the curse of the crucible is my triple oh, crown. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a sentence you don't hear very often. <laughs> no, but there were two of them. There was one with Ted Lowe about 84, 85, and then there was another one around about 1988. I would say it was, and Jack Carnham was definitely the opponent for that one. Okay, well, anyway, yeah. <laughs> he said anyway. I, I did speculate whether he was related to Norman Dagley, the former world billionaire. Yeah. Now here's a here's a here's a paragraph. Okay, he said, no, no relation to Norman, I'm afraid. Although I did try to claim to my fellow ten-year-old schoolmates that I'd won the world billiards title <laughs> with a with a newspaper cutting which had the scores printed with the name written N Dagley. Funnily enough, there wasn't a huge problem in persuading them that I had indeed won it. The real issue was that none of them were particularly impressed. Billiards problem in a nutshell. There. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a, that's that's an extraordinary anecdote, isn't it? Well, it reminds me, actually, just of of something that happened. I I guess it would have been last year, actually. So um, Donald Trump came to visit Ireland Mm. and the the president of Ireland, uh, as some listeners may or may not know, is Michael Higgins. So and there was a conversation between them about um, sort of global warming and all of that. Bear in mind, this was about two weeks after the 2019 world final. And I actually picked up a newspaper, the headline of the main story on the front page was Higgins criticizes Trump on climate. And for one brief moment, I thought, my word, this is some extraordinary fallout from the yeah. world final. Get over it, John. Yeah. Get over it, John. You with your yeah. triple crown. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he just wanted, uh, yeah. It was a triple crown of world final defeats for John. Maybe that was, maybe that was the issue. <laughs> right. Carwin from Wales writes, 
Well, let's read. Let's read out the complimentary first paragraph before we get into the main thing. Mm-hmm. And I would like to start by just saying thank you for your excellent and entertaining podcast. I've listened to each episode from the start, and they are just brilliant. He doesn't say he got to the finish. He just listened from the start. <laughs> uh, you both talk about fascinating subjects, and your knowledge knowledge memories are quite extraordinary. Thank you, Corin. He says, <laughs> "This is quite a funny uh, question." He said. I'm writing to you because I just don't get why Mark Selby has the nickname Jester from Leicester. Mm-hmm. Selby, although being a very good player, has got to be one of the least funny characters on the circuit. Not once I've <laughs> heard him. Not once I've heard him crack a joke or look happy when he's playing. Maybe it's an ironic nickname. Well, here's the thing, okay? It's not. It's not the comedy store, is it? When you're out there playing, you know, the Crucible. There's not actually that much. I mean, who does crack jokes when they're playing? Really? In the old days, the, the old days they used to do it essentially to put each other off. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but here's the myth. Here's yeah. the myth, right? Okay, and I, I want to put this to rest as well. For years and years, they, they, they started doing this thing, didn't they? And uh, where, where they would put together a musical montage at the end of the World Championship, and they would throw in a couple of things like, you know, Fred Davis shrugging his shoulders yeah. or Bill Warbeck struggling to lean over the table, and they would set it to the music of the Entertainer. I think some of the years, but there were all kinds of other songs used as well. And these used to get shown again and again and again, year after year after year. Now, even if you regard those moments as, you know, classic comedy uh, interludes, as it were, you might get two or three moments like that in the whole 17 days of the World Championship. But because those musical montages kept being shown year after year, this impression built up that back in the day, back in the late 70s and the early 80s, that the guys were laughing and joking constantly all the time. And it was basically, you know, carry on snooker. (laughs) <laughs> but I think it's a complete myth that was built up over the years that it happened. And as you say, I mean, you know, most most people aren't that funny. So don't go out and try to make jokes. <laughs> and, you know, the, 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 you know, as we prove on this every single week, yeah, yeah. the reason Mark is known as the jester from Leicester is basically because jester rhymes with Leicester. It's a rhyme. But, yeah, it's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But what I will say this, and you'll back me up on this. It, when you're chatting to Mark away from the table, you know, in the players' room or whatever, or, you know, socially, he is actually, you know, reasonably amusing and comes out with some good quips. So maybe that's just because he thought, well, if I'm going to be known as the jester, I'd better come up with some some quips well, and try to live up to it a bit. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe when Rob Walker introduces him, he should call him the reasonably amusing Mark Selby. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think Mark's a funny guy. He's, he's, yeah, he is. The thing is, though, you can be relaxed when you're not playing, but when you're out there, it's a very tense environment and... You know, your your first priority is not necessarily to, to unleash a sort of bon mot. You know, it's kind of to, you're more interested in, in sort of, you know, playing a good safety, I suppose. Well, I love all these guys just um, in another sport. There's a classic example of this in golf. You have a lot of these guys who were decent golfers, maybe one or one, one or two European tour events, played in a couple of Ryder Cups. And when they're talking about Nick Faldo, who was the best player in their era, their main sort of takeaway thing from him seems to be oh he was humorless he was never joking with you on the course he'd walk around you know and never talk to you right well you didn't win a major and he won six so there you go there's the end of that and i mean you don't even need to go into other sports it was the same with steve davis as well oh he's humorless he's aloof six world titles yeah and also steve you know has a very good sense of humor it's very different to, to a lot of people's but um he sort of, you know, he, he played on his old, we know he played on his old image as well. Anyway, let's move on. James Heat, he said, in many sports, it's usual to select a team or player to support. Once the team or player has been selected, it's normal to be completely biased when watching that sport. In many cases, people are not even particularly interested in the quality of the games as long as their team or player wins. I get the impression snooker's a bit different and fans are more likely to be neutral and just want to see either a high quality match or an exciting match. Get the feeling James hasn't been on Twitter of late. Anyway, yeah. he said, he said I have a couple of favourite players, and when they're not playing, I enjoy the sport as a neutral. But when one of my favourites is playing, I often lose the enjoyment if they're losing. I wish I could just stay neutral so I could just enjoy the game. As commentators, where you have to stay neutral as part of the job, I presume you don't suffer from this problem. Well, a lot, I think a lot of Stuka fans have their favourites, um, but I also think that it's not like they just turn off if, you know, say you're, I don't know, a Ding Jun Wee fan, and he gets beaten the last 16. It doesn't mean you're not going to watch any more of it. Um, mm. You know, people are maybe a little bit less partial. I think they kind of do, yeah, more more over like the sport. But I mean, you look at you know going back, Jimmy White had very passionate fans. Alex Siggins very passionate fans. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with associating with someone. In terms of commentary, I can honestly say, honestly say, I couldn't care less who wins when I commentate because what you're doing really, you're interested in your own performance and what you're doing. And are you doing the job right? Have you prepared properly? Are you concentrating properly? And you're reacting to what the story is. You're not trying to um, influence the story of who wins. You're just reacting. You can't influence it. So 
you're there to just call it, basically. And, you know, afterwards, I mean, for example, when Anthony Hamilton won the German Masters, I was very pleased for him afterwards. But I wasn't supporting him, necessarily. I was just watching the match, which is what your job is. So... Um, when I, you know, when I just used to be a snooker fan, I had my certain favourite players, but I was never. That never meant I was anti another player. It's not like football, where you know you kind of you're that sort of you know um, passionate about it. You know, you hopefully snooker fans just appreciate the sport first and foremost. Yeah, I mean, I, I know I used to get very heavily invested in Ken Doherty's matches when I was doing um, newspaper and radio stuff around the time he was in his heyday. And I, I suppose, you know, obviously I, I like Ken a lot and we were playing in the same club at the time. So of course I would have wanted him to win. But, you know, the fact that I was involved in covering his career and the big success story and the big story he was generally in Ireland at that time, you know, I wanted there to be more success and I wanted him to win more titles. And you know, he lost so many big finals and it would be, a, you know, a real kind of sense of disappointment at the end because you feel when you're there primarily to cover a particular player, you want to feel that you're part of something big and you want to feel that you're reporting back on a big success story. So I certainly used to get massively emotionally invested in uh, in those days. And perhaps I'll experience that again in five or ten years time if, if Aaron Hill delivers on his promise. Now, we've been talking about snooker in popular culture and in particular an extraordinary, well, it was from me, actually, that uh, Phil Yates appeared in Garfield 2. Um, yeah. And we've had a couple of, go on. Well, can I just say, it's just dawning on me now that since you told me that, I spent an entire week with Phil Yates and it never crossed my mind once to ask him about this. I can't <laughs> believe it now. This is the first time I've thought about it since. Go on, anyway. I'm surprised he didn't bring it up. But anyway, well, yeah. so Dara Breen, possibly he's Irish, um, says, I can, and here's the first source on this, okay? Dara says, I can confirm that Phil does, it, does indeed appear in Garfield 2. This is the full title of the film, Garfield 2, A Tale of Two Kitties. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds, it sounds like it... It sounds like it was the worst of times. Anyway, uh, he says, so Dara says, it's a Premier League match. Uh, look, It looks like it's Ronnie O'Sullivan and Mark Williams. But we have a second source on this. Uh, Callum Law from Inverurie. He says, uh, he goes on to another topic, which we'll come on to. But first, he says, your mention of Garfield 2 in the podcast was correct. And he's got more, more meat on the bones here. He says, Garfield and his family were in London. In the hotel room, Garfield puts on the TV. And Premier League snooker is on Sky. I believe it's Ronnie O'Sullivan playing Steve Davis. So Ronnie does feature in this. He says, however, rather than being engrossed in the game, Garfield was more interested in fantasising about being able to sleep on the table. I mean, this is like, it makes Citizen Kane look like a lot of fuss about nothing, this, doesn't yeah. it? Um, well, yeah, I mean, we'll have to, I mean, Phil is aware of this, clearly. You would, you'd be. I think Ian McCulloch told him. I think Ian McCulloch, the former player, was the one who spotted this. That's my memory of it. Um, anyway, that's a whole other, anyone else who can, you know, give give more give more details on this film, please let us know because I'm I'm certainly not going to watch it. I think I think this is one of these things where it's it's a bit like sort of looking directly at the sun. It's sort of this whole thing about Phil and Garfield too. I mean, obviously, it's pretty much the most enormous thing that's ever yeah. happened. This revelation, yeah. but yeah. it's like I can't begin to process the enormity of it yet. So I'm not quite ready to engage fully with it. But I love that title, A Tale of Two Kitties. I mean, yeah. you know, on that basis alone, it was worth making. But I'll tell you, if I ever do get to see it, I have great expectations of what it'll be like. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Oh, what the Dickens was Phil doing, Ennis? Well, Sorry, of course. No more. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, you know, it would cheer you up because, of course, you live in a bleak house. But yeah. I, I don't know what that means. But anyway, uh, OK. So, but Callum, moving on, Callum also has got other things to say. He said, uh, I wasn't around in the 80s, but in my opinion, we're now living in the golden age for snooker on free-to-air TV. As well as the three BBC tournaments, we now have the Coral Series, although it's not Coral anymore, uh, and Champion of Champions on ITV, and Eurosports coverage of the Home Nations events shown free to air on Quest. By my reckoning, that's 11 tournaments on Freeview Television. The coverage is more in-depth and comprehensive than the 80s, when, as you guys have previously mentioned, most of it, particularly in the early stages, just seemed to be highlights. In terms of growing interest in the game, I think the current amount of snooker on free to air TV is very good, especially in comparison with nine or ten years ago, when after the BBC dropped the, the Grand Prix we were left with just the Masters UK and World Championships on Freeview before ITV got back involved. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you, Callum. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you've got a point. And I know for a fact the BBC are doing another documentary about snooker in the 80s. And it seems to me that snooker loves to celebrate every golden age, apart from the one it's actually living in. You know, this is this is a bit of a golden age. We're talking British television, OK, British and Irish television, maybe. But, you know, in Europe, obviously, Eurosport, which is free on some packages, I understand. Is it's available. It's available online. There's this new Matchroom Live service where you can watch it. So there's never been more of an opportunity to watch snooker. That's absolutely true. 
I think in terms of British TV, it is important to still have it on free-to-air TV. Not everyone has satellite television, digital television, I understand that. But if you've got a TV set, you get Freeview. So you get ITV4, you get Quest, obviously the BBC. Um, and what a lot of people have said um, is that, you know, because at the moment we've got one tournament after another. A lot of people say that's overkill, people will turn off, it's too much. The exact opposite is true when you look at the ratings. I know for a fact on Eurosport, when they have a run of tournaments one after another, the ratings are always really good because people just get used to watching it and the sort of narratives develop, stories develop. So, yeah, it's definitely, you know, a great time to be a snooker fan. And actually, not that I want to mention Nick Metcalf again and, and Phil Haig's podcast because we, we bigged them up far too much last time, but they made the point that a lot of other sports would kill to have this sort of coverage, you know, hour upon hour upon hour. There was six hours of snooker on the BBC, you know, for that UK final, you know, BBC Two. So a lot of sports will kill for that. And yet 20 years ago, I remember someone writing in a newspaper, now that the game has all but disappeared from terrestrial <laughs> television, you know. And at that time, BBC were doing four tournaments and ITV were actually uh, showing some events at that stage as well, because they did briefly come back into it before disappearing again and then coming back in recent times. Look, modern sports, to be taken seriously as a big time modern sport, you've got to have lots of tournaments. You've got to be on week after week because otherwise the game is only slipping in and out of your consciousness. And also the fact that there are so many events now, that's contributed so much to the massive rise in standards. You think back to 15 years ago or thereabouts when, you know, there were very few tournaments. You could go two months without anything and everyone was coming in, you know, really stale. They were under huge pressure because it was their only chance to earn money in a period of about two or three months. And it was really affecting, I think, the quality of, of, of uh, the game that was being produced by a lot of players. Now they're all playing so much. They're so sharp. And you're really seeing that coming through in, in the quality and the standard that we're getting. Owen Lahane writes, I'm an Irish guy living in San Francisco. Love the podcast. What's the story of broadcasting rights in the US? With the time difference, snooker isn't going up against anything. I'd love it if it was on BBC America. Well, I don't know how BBC America works. But um, again, I think Matchroom Live now is this new platform, online platform. Um, and this is where sports coverage will end up going, I'm sure. I mean, already Amazon is showing sort of tennis and football. Mm. You know, the sort of Netflix of sport thing will come probably. Um, so it might not be on television, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you can watch it in America on that platform. And if I'm wrong, I apologise. But well, I what think... about the zone? <laughs> well, that's similar. Yeah, that's a similar thing. So I don't mm. quite know. I don't quite know exactly because World Snooker has listed these sort of broadcasters and places to watch it. Um, you check out their website, you know, before every tournament, it'll be on there somewhere. But they always say if it's not on TV where you are, it'll be on Matchroom Live. So I'm pretty sure that applies in America. And what you get is. You get, I think, the, the what you call what's called the World Feed commentary, which is the UK would have been the BBC commentary and Scottish Open would be the Eurosport commentary and essentially the host broadcasters, ITV at the World Grand Prix. You get what everyone else hears. Um, it's not a sort of full studio production, but you get to watch the snooker, I guess. So if I'm wrong about that, I apologise, but that's my understanding of how of how that works. I'm just going to move on before we sort of wrap up because we had a lot of emails. We haven't had a chance to get to them all, but I, I don't delete them. So next week. Um, we can we can return to them. But Kev from Leicester, this is back to uh, snooker in popular culture because this is a more mo more recent example. We've been talking about sort of the old days, but this is very recent. It was basically a couple of weeks ago. So he says, <clears throat> the most recent appearance of a snooker table uh, surely has to be Steve McQueen's brilliant film Red, White and Blue. Now, I should say this is Steve McQueen, the director, not mm. Steve McQueen, the actor. Okay, He said it's set in the 80s. It aired on the BBC last weekend. It forms part of a series of five films known as Small Axe, also available to stream on the BBC iPlayer. It's based on a true story and sees John Boyega joining the police, motivated by a desire to combat institutional racism in the force. Now, it's then written spoiler warning in big letters. OK, so if you haven't seen this and you want to maybe turn off for 20 seconds, he said the scene in question occurs around the one hour, five minute mark. as John Boyega's police officer interrupts a jovial game of snooker to confront his overtly racist copper colleagues on why they did not provide him with backup in a previous scene, where he'd been chasing down a suspect alone. Niche detail. During the confrontation, the reds are smashed all over the place in a close-up, but when we get another long shot at the table, the balls look largely untouched and remain more or less in the position they were to begin with. I Notice this. So not only does this count as a great use of snooker in a pivotal scene in a film, it must also be surely be filed in the niche section of the podcast. Well, that's the whole set. That's the whole podcast, in fairness. He said, Continuity errors notwithstanding is an excellent film, well worth anybody's time. I'd be surprised if anyone else could come up with a more recent example of snooker on TV or in a film. 
Another happy coincidence is that the title Red, White and Blue even makes it sound like it could be mm. a, snooker about, a movie about snooker, which, to be clear, it's not. Uh, and then he says, thanks for the podcast. I discovered it early in the first lockdown. It kept me entertained on my daily walk. Despite living outside the city of Leicester in the suburbs, I'm very lucky to have access to a snooker club that's walking distance from my house. So I'm looking forward to things getting back to normal. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we've been to Leicester. There seem to be a lot of snooker clubs. Uh, obviously, it's oh, got yeah. great tradition there. Um, okay, well, I've not seen that. I've, I haven't seen anything other than snooker for about a month, but um, I'll, I'll try and check that out. It sounds very, very interesting. Um, well, Theresa yeah. May, of course, said she wanted a red, white and blue Brexit. And nobody yeah. had any idea what she meant. Maybe that's what she was talking about. I have to confess, actually, when I went to see 12 Years a Slave, I thought it was directed by the same Steve McQueen who had been in The Great Escape. I wasn't aware he'd actually died in 1980. Mm. But here's the thing. I think now would be an appropriate moment to drop my second bombshell of the week. Wow. Yeah. You weren't expecting this. So after the whole John Higgins thing, I think we're starting to have an impact on... Let's say modern culture. Let's put it that way, because which, which of course we don't like. So that's, that's interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's not really modern culture. Yeah. I, I can't think of a better way of putting it. But but what I will say is this: a few weeks ago, I think we mentioned it in a couple of episodes, and um, we were going off down one of our blind alleys. You talked about the Steptoe and Son episode where they play snooker. Yeah, snooker, right? That was in black and white, I think. Mm. Right. Two weeks ago, not long after we'd been talking about it. Someone put a colorized version of it on YouTube. Mm. I, I, yeah, I saw something about this actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there we go. Now you've got to think that can't be a coincidence. Yeah, it's got to I'm be. Saying it, talking about it. I'm saying it's not a coincidence. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> well, this is this is power, you see, and you've got to use it responsibly, as uh, yeah. as as Theresa May did, as you just mentioned. Anyway. Mm. Um, we have had a few others, but we're going to we're going to wrap up there. But as I say, we'll hopefully come to it next week, which I guess we'll have to call a Christmas special. Um, mm. it, there'll be nothing special about it. It'll be the same stuff as it's always been. Um, but um, yeah, it'll be our last edition before Christmas. You can still email us uh, before then. Snooker scene podcast at mail dot com. Snooker scene podcast at mail dot com. Um, with any thoughts about what you've heard, if you've seen Garfield Two: A Tale of Two Kitties, then do uh, <laughs> do give us more information because I'm guessing that scene was very brief. I'd like to know how the rest of the film pans out. Um, we're going to end up having to watch it, aren't we? That's the, that's the kind of bad news about that. I mean, why don't we get why don't we get together with Nick Metcalf and Phil Haig and watch it together and sort of comment on it as we go through and make it a kind of four way podcast. Well, the answer to that is because no one would want to listen to it. No, and I suspect, uh, I'm guessing Nick and Phil have better things to do as well. I'm just guessing that. But anyway, um, listen, thanks for for listening. And um, yeah, we'll be back. We'll be back soon. Sports Social Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.